Welcome to Poet Kind Podcast. Poet Kind is dedicated to creative hospitality, to sharing what comes our way and seeking out the voices that can move us closer together. Today is Tuesday, October 29th, 2019, and I'm your host, Susan Mulder. This week, I got to speak with author Jane Kirkpatrick. For those of you out there who are writers, you'll know that NaNoWriMo is coming in a matter of days, and I thought it would be fun to feature a novelist leading into this month-long challenge. Not just any novelist, though. Jane Kirkpatrick is a New York Times best-selling author with more than 30 books to her name and has been the recipient of numerous awards. Many of her books are based on real-life individuals, strong women who overcame remarkable odds to find a new life in the pioneering West. Without giving too much away, let's say hello and get right into this great interview. Today, I'd like to welcome Jane Kirkpatrick to Poet Kind. She is an author and she has this wonderful, colorful background that she brings to her writing. And I recently read one of her books, One More River to Cross. It was a wonderful read. And I look forward to talking to you about that. So thank you, Jane, for joining, to, joining me here today. It's my pleasure. Thanks for inviting me. You, I mentioned you have kind of a colorful background, and I mean <laughs> that in the best possible way. Um, you didn't come out as a writer necessarily, as far as fiction goes, you have really some amazing experiences in your background. Could you tell us a little bit about that? Well, I always liked words, and so there's that connection. I thought they were funny, and they, I love the sounds of words, and, and would fall in love with words, even if I didn't know what they meant, just because they sounded interesting, like aghast, and, yeah. and pig, which is a little sort of bubbly kind of word. Um, but my, I grew up on a dairy in, in the Midwest in Wisconsin and um, had an older sister and a younger brother and eventually went off to um, college at the University of Wisconsin and began a major in English, which I really, I loved reading. That was my escape and that was what I uh, loved doing. Um, and actually then eventually moved over into a different program called Communications and Public Address which was a new field at the time, it tells how old I am, but it was studying <laughs> advertising, it was studying how people uh, changed their minds, how people made decisions, which I found really fascinating. And then I was invited by one of my professors after I graduated um, to co-lead a parent group with him. Uh, and it was for parents of children who had been referred to the court for a juvenile um, that we called it juvenile delinquency then, you know, but right. kids who were having some problems. And, um, and so I co-led that group with him and I really found it fascinating to spend time listening to the stories of families and, and how they were trying to, um, you know, try to heal these families that were undergoing lots of stress. So when I, um, when my husband moved at that point, he wanted to move to a different town and I got a job in social welfare and decided at that point, um, after a couple of years, to go back and get a master's degree in clinical social work. And that was what I, um, that was what led me um, into Oregon, actually. I took okay. a job out here working with families with disabilities. 
And so then that was my life was mental health and working with um, families, counseling, eventually administrating. And, um, and then my um, second husband and I decided to make a major move and we, we sold everything and we moved to what I called Rattlesnake and Rock Ranch. Um, wow, that's a, it was that is a hundred transition. Yes, and it was 160 acres of just sagebrush and there was a beautiful river that ran through it. Um, lots of, there were snakes. There was, we were seven miles from our mailbox and 11 miles from our paved road. And I did really wonder what I would do there. I really worried at first that my husband and I would kill each other and we'd be dead for weeks <laughs> and no one would even know. Um, and so my, um, you know, this really it, it, an inspirational moment was um, hearing the word word when I was really asking, you know, what will I do here? Um, and so I, I took some classes at the local community college before we moved. And some of the assignments, um, they were essays and uh, features, and I was able to get them sold before we moved. Mm -hmm. So that was very gratifying. And I thought, well, then that's something I could do that would keep me from going stir crazy. Because my skills, I believed, were in counseling and, and administration, and there was nothing like that there. And yet I felt a great compulsion to go with him to, for this dream that he had to see if he could make a life yeah. Um, as close to pioneering as it, it was possible at the time. Yeah. And that opened the door to writing. Well, it sounds e like even your setting is great uh, inspiration for a lot of your writing, that Western kind of pioneering spirit, and that comes through. Yes, so I, yeah. I think that's really neat. One of the things that mentioned um when i was reading about you is rattlesnake fighter now that's you mentioned there were snakes on your property did you actually have to yes. fight a few off i did i i learned how to do that i first i had to learn how to distinguish them between bull snakes which are good snakes um but the rattlesnakes we and, and they ate rodents too but if they got too close um and they were problematic for dogs and, and other things. And we tried to stay out of their way. And actually we learned over time that they don't like to have people around either. And so where, when we have the tractors going or there was a lot of noise, we wouldn't have trouble with snakes. But the first year that we were there, we uh, raised watermelons um, for commercial production and they loved the watermelon patch. It was, oh. you know, it was really, uh, you had to go down and be really careful, wear boots, and then you'd lift the leaves of the watermelon um, with your foot to make sure that there wasn't a snake curled up there in the cool in the sand, which is what they um, they liked. So, yes, I learned how to deal with rattlesnakes and how to shoot them and when they got too close. Um, but mostly we avoided each other, and that seemed to work quite well. <laughs> um, just just yeah. the idea of lifting up a watermelon leaf to see if there is one. I mean, it just, I would not I do know. well in that situation. Me and snakes are not good friends. <laughs> <laughs> I give you a lot of credit for doing that. You have read, uh, written a number of books, and I want to say it's, it's over 30 now, right? Correct, yes. Yeah. The, and a, one river to go, one more river. Class is 33, so 33. that's the 33rd one, yeah. Okay. Was there a particular 
moment that you decided that you were going to um, transition into writing novels and what what is your main inspiration to get you going you know on a different idea do you do specific research what's your creative process like so the first part of the question is what was there something specific that happened that transitioned from nonfiction articles and essays that I've been writing into fiction and there was I had read um, I was I always loved stories of um, pioneers but I, I didn't particularly like history but I liked the stories mm -hmm. and I had read in local historical society um, journal a reprint of a story that a boy in the third grade had written about his um, his ancestors and it was about a couple um, they had these parallels between my husband and I he had been a builder and that's what my husband had been and they had no children of their own and we had no children of our own and um, and there were 16 years of an age difference um, between Jane her name was Jane too um, mm -hmm. between she and um, between her and her husband and my husband and I and they were trying to build a life on a very remote river which is exactly what we were trying to do is build a life only 150 years before that mm. and so i couldn't find very much about her i wanted to write a biography of her um she they also were um their neighbors were the wasco warm springs and paiute people and those that was the tribe that i was working for um, okay. involved in early childhood with that tribe and um so i kept waiting for a real writer to tell their story because i just couldn't find anything about her i could find things about him and her father and her brothers but nothing about her particularly except her obituary and um so i kept waiting for a real writer to write it and couldn't be me because i wasn't a novelist and couldn't be me because it wasn't my family <laughs> and i had all these rules and, and my husband said one day if you think it's a great story you should just write it down and if people don't like your version they can write their own and i thought well that that's pretty good advice so i thought well when would i do this um because i had been commuting it was a two and a half hour commute um one way and i would stay overnight um, to work at the tribe and then come back and um so i thought well all i had been doing between five and seven in the morning was sleeping and so i made a commitment to set the alarm for four o'clock i wasn't a morning person but i thought I didn't know, and I didn't know how long it would take to write a book. What did I know? So I um, set the alarm for four, and my plan was to be at the computer by five, ready to go, breakfast, you know, everything. And then the next day, we went to a historical society meeting, and I sat next to a man who asked me what I did, and I said, I'm a writer. Hmm. And it was the first time I'd said that without the disclaimer. Um, and he asked me what I was working on, and I said, I'm writing the story of Jane and Joseph Shear and their life with the Wasco Warm Springs and Paiute people. And I had not yet written one sentence, but I always felt like I had done the hardest work because I had made that commitment. You began. And he said, oh, you should, he said, you should meet my cousin. And I said, why? And he said, well, she owns the property that their original homestead is on. Mm. And I'm sure she'd let you walk there. And every book has had a moment like that where it's like, I couldn't have, I couldn't have found this other than having made that commitment. And I came across a quote from uh, Goethe, who said that what people don't realize is that once you make a commitment to something, then providence moves 
and things begin to happen that you otherwise never could have imagined. Isn't so, so true. They have all been yeah. I think if you decide to start a small business or you think, oh, I'm going to look after my grandkids a few days a week, you, know, you make those commitments and then things begin to happen that make that be possible. It doesn't mean that everything is going to turn out well or that you're, you know, that there won't be obstacles, but there is that commitment that's a part of the spirit of this journey um, that knows that you're not alone in, in, the, in the walking on that journey. Yeah. I, I love how you just owned it. You know, you just decided that <laughs> I am, I am doing this. And so often the hardest part of any yes. project is doing that. It's, it's not even slugging. Yes. I mean, there's hard work in slugging through writing everything out, but to say, this is it. This is it. Yeah. So. And I think, and I've, since then I've really felt as though the stories have found me, you know, and it might be, I find them in a footnote um, or, you know, the, we, one book I wrote, we were visiting a, a state park that was quite beautiful. I had never been there before on the Oregon coast. And, uh, and there was just one little snippet about how this man had built this mansion and this formal garden and how he got, he was a wealthy, ship owner and he brought he had his um, captains bring back flowers and trees from all over the world to plant for this gorgeous garden for her and then nobody ever talked about her and I thought what kind of a woman inspires this and no one talks about her I mean I always say my husband loves me very much but he buys me earrings you know <laughs> so uh, for me that was an un that was an unanswered question. And most of the stories in terms of the creative process is there is an unanswered question. It's the unanswered question, I think, for me. And in many ways, I think uh, my editors, who have all made my work so much better, every one of them, and part of how they've done that is because of the questions that they ask mm. about the work. You know, they say things like, well, you haven't really talked about X or Y. Um, and it's like they can they can zero in on the missing. And I think that's part of what, for me, what I find really enjoyable about the creative process is that I get, I am trying to solve a mystery, but I also am surprised, just like I hope the reader will be surprised by some of the twists and turns that happen in a storyline. Yeah. What is the most unusual journey you've been on, you know, found either a footnote or something that sparked an idea? What, what has been the most challenging or unusual one for you? I think one of them was, um, I, and this was a, you know, I do get people who now come to me and say, you should write the story of my great aunt. She was the first woman who did thus or so. And, and I always tell them, you know, no, you should write that story. You're the keeper of it. That story has tapped you on the shoulder. Um, and that if, if that were to call my name, I know that I would learn something about myself in the process of writing that, that I otherwise wouldn't learn, mm -hmm. but I wouldn't learn what you would learn because that's your story. Um, and so I usually tell people, no, you write that story. But uh, um, a number, of, about five or six years ago, a woman came to me with a story. 
and she had the story that she and um, a fellow student at the Oregon State University, and this had been, you know, 30 years before, they had been researching something else and they came across court documents of an African-American woman in Oregon in the 1840s and 50s who had brought a lawsuit, which was very, very unusual for the time because people of color were um, excluded from Oregon at the time, especially free black people. Um, and she, yet here was this evidence that she had brought a lawsuit um, and that there had been a second lawsuit and there were the records um, in the court of, and part of the lawsuit was um, related to her. She had a white common law husband who passed away. They had two children together and the administrator of the estate um, had taken everything from her and said, you get nothing because mm -hmm. you're not, you're not a, you're not a real person. And so they sold, he sold the potatoes in the field. He sold, you know, the children's bed, the children's clothing. Um, and yet it would appear that there were neighbors who bought some of those items. And then we believe they gave some of them back. And then she filed a second lawsuit and she won both of these lawsuits later um, by saying she had worked for her husband, this man, for all these years and she just wanted her wages. So I found that to be just fascinating. How did she happen to come here? What was the risk she took in coming here? And because it was a story of an African-American woman who I was not of my race, you know, could I write this story? Um, and, and I said to this woman, you know, you need to write this story. And she said, no. She said, we are actually working on um, a series of articles about her because her name was Letitia Carson. And she went on to be one of the first women who actually proved up a homestead in the entire country. So mm. she went from being property in Kentucky to owning property in Oregon. Wow. Um, and so I, I was so moved by that. And um, I became involved in an organization called Oregon Black Pioneers. And they were incredibly helpful in helping me, you know, come to some, um, decision about how to convey this story and how to convey and tell her story and bring that story to light. So it, it was a challenge on a variety of levels um, because there's not a lot of information about people of color um, if you're trying to do research and women in particular. So here was a, an African-American woman um, who had been a slave um, and who had, we only knew about her because she'd had this lawsuit but I was actually able to find out more things about her and, and the Oregon Black Pioneers helped me do that as well. That's fascinating that what a, um, well, what a historically significant story to tell. It, it really, yeah, it has been. And I think, you know, I've talked with people since it actually, um, it, the title of that is a light in the wilderness and it won the Willa, uh, literary award through the women writing the west so it it got some exposure which i was really pleased about especially for young girls um, to be able to see the possibilities even when um, the economic and um, social conditions are you know against you how you can overcome them and and really make an amazing life and um, and have an impact generations later yeah, what a, I think that's a tremendous gift to share with people, 
an empowering story like that. So that's really, I'm sitting here taking notes while I'm talking to you because my, my books that I want to order list is getting longer <laughs> as I, as I talk I with you. <laughs> Do you still get up at four o'clock in the morning to write? Has your process changed and evolved over time? It has evolved, but I still, I, I, um, as I get closer to finishing a book, um, I, I will get up earlier and earlier. And so I'm sometimes up at one thirty oh, wow. and writing because that's most alert. And then I, you know, will write until six or seven and, and then go back to bed or take naps or whatever my husband has gotten. He's adjusted to my strange <laughs> sleeping habits. Um, and I think he's happy the dog sleeps with us, so he's not he's not left alone. Um, yeah. But I uh, I have developed other practices partly because I'm no longer working full time. Okay. So uh, when I was working full time, I had to get that was just the only time I could do it. I tried to write in the evening, but I would make terrible mistakes, and mm -hmm. so I would lose whole chapters or whatever. So, but I could do research at night, and that and that worked. Um, but the writing was, and I, and I thought when I was working um, full time, I, I thought that maybe I would get, be too tired by getting up at four and writing for two hours or so. But what I found is that I was energized mm. by the writing so that by the, I'd have to, you know, I hated to stop and I'd have to stop and go to this other job. Um, but I had energy and no matter how that day unfolded, I still had already could say to myself, you kept your commitment. You know, mm -hmm. you kept the promise to this story, this woman really helped that I didn't in the first probably four or five books. I didn't do this. Um, and then I had an, um, an editor who was actually the same editor for the first four or five books. But he said, he suggested I read a book called Structuring Your Novel. Uh, by Robert uh, Meredith and John Fitzgerald. And there's a practice in there that they suggested, and they said, um, and it's answering three questions before you start writing of this woman's life or these people's lives, and then what else might have been going on in the world. And um, I weave four threads that I call my, my creative threads, which are the landscape and how people relate to that, um, their relationships, the spirituality, you know, where they drew their strength from, and their work. And so those are all wrapped into the story. But before I start, I do, I answer these three questions. And the first one is just, uh, you know, the elevator question, what's your intention? What's this story about? You know? right. And then the second question is, what's my attitude towards this story? And, and the corollary to that is, what do I feel deeply about? What really matters to me in this story? And then the third question is, what's my purpose in writing this story? And the corollary to that is, how do I hope a reader might be changed by reading this story? Because that's you know, one of the primary purposes of fiction in particular, and I think poetry as well, is to move people. Exactly. Is to move yeah. our hearts, to move our spirits. And sometimes it may mean moving and getting up off the couch and going doing something that matters you know or i love it when people write to me and say we read this book and we decided to take a vacation and drive out from minnesota and go to these places that you had written about 
So they're actually moving their bodies across the country, which is uh, very gratifying. But I, but the answer, uh, answer those three questions. It might take me many pages for each each one, but I try to get it down to one sentence each, and then in little tiny font, I print those three sentences out and I hook them on top of my computer, and then I start to write. And when I get lost partway through, or when I start to hear these little harpies that sit behind me saying. Mm -hmm that was terrible, and no one's going to read this, this is the worst thing you've ever written, um, that I can look back up there and say, okay, this is what the story is about. This is what matters to me, and this is how I hope a reader will be affected by it. Um, and, and then I can get restarted again. So um, it's just become a really great way uh, to, to stay in the room, if that's a way of saying it, okay. to not you know, quit and go do something else. Um, and I think, you know, I actually have done some workshops called staying in the room, <laughs> you know, things for, for creative writers in particular to be able to silence those little harpies that, um, you know, remember in the Greek tragedies, the harpies would run across the stage and say, terrible things are going to happen. <laughs> um, and I think we all have them speaking to us uh, in a very harmful way. And so yes. we, have to, we have to put duct tape. Yes. Yeah. Put duct tape on the harpies. That's, there you that's go. my task. And oh, I love that. That little, the little structure of the three sentences um, really helps to be able to silence that negative voice and keep going. And now that I have a, um, most of the books have been sold under contract. So there's a proposal that I say these are the these are the next three stories that really interest me. And what I do find is that often at the end of the first draft, the end of the first section that I submit to my editor, um, the answers to those three might have changed. Hmm. And that seems okay with me because that tells me that the story was speaking to me and okay. I was learning from the story. as well. So it, 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 at first I was kind of scared that, oh my gosh, I got totally off track here. Um, but then I realized, no, that's part of that creative process too, to be open to, as long as I don't get lost um, in, you know, getting on the, spending so much time researching something that really is irrelevant, or what I call getting, um, getting the smart author process of, oh, I know the name of the captain of the ship that that couple was on for their honeymoon and the reader wants to know that no the reader doesn't want to know that so it helps me let go of that sort of thing as well yeah yeah it's interesting because i think almost any creative process you get those harpies and they can be so deep yeah. but but what yes. um, what a great tool um you could almost use that i mean i i I have a formal painting background um, prior mm -hmm. to writing. So, you know, even, even in that environment, it would be a wonderful tool, right. to, you know, so, cause so often I'll just walk away from something for a while um, and come back to it, but it's too easy to lose the thread, whether I'm painting or writing. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah, I think I, I, I agree with you that it's another way to hold on to the thread. You know, yeah. another way that the very thread that said, this is the story calling your name. And yeah. when that story 
gets sort of drifted away, it's a way of bringing it back. Yeah. Yeah. Now, have you ever found yourself in a place where you just get stuck? Uh, some people call it writer's block. Um, have you ever found yourself in a, in a place like that? And how do, you, how do you work through that? What does that look like for you? You know, I, a big, in part because I've sold the books by contract, I know there's a deadline and that there are people counting on me. Yeah, and definitely. so, um, yes, and the other little sign that I have on top of my computer is something from Anne Lamott, um, and where, and she tells this story, which I won't go into the whole story, but the bottom line was her friend said to her, oh, Anne, you don't have time for that. And so that's my little quote that says, you don't have time for that. So when I start to sort of obsess or like, oh, I don't know what to write or whatever, it's like, you don't have time for that. <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. you need to get to work. Um, inspiration. I, I used to have this cartoon that showed a writer at a blank screen and a little ghost voice that said, hi, inspiration couldn't make it today. <laughs> um, she sent me, she sent me instead. I'm a dry, scratchy cough. <laughs> and so I don't have time for the dry, scratchy cough. Um, right. So I, uh, so some of the ways that I would get through that was, you know, telling myself people are counting on me, mm -hmm. um, and I'm a people pleaser, so I certainly didn't want to disappoint anybody. Um, but also, I, then I started doing some other tricks. I used to finish writing for the day at the end of a chapter, and I stopped doing that. And now I usually end right in the middle of a sentence. Hmm. So that the next day when I come back, I always know I have a place to start. And I never have to look at that blank screen. Okay. Um, I, I think of it more as um, like a horse race. I just want to get this down. I just want to get this story down. And so I'll make notes to myself in the, in the margins or comment area and say, you know, research the description of this room later. Um, or um, if I have minor characters, I don't know their names. I don't spend any time with the baby book at that point. I just say they're John and Mary. <laughs> okay. And then their names get changed later. Um, so they're just little tricks like that that have been really helpful um, just to keep me going. And But I think really the biggest one is to remind myself that um, – this is not about me. It's not about whether I do a great job. It's about how well I tell that story. And there's a little writer's prayer that I cut out from Writer's Digest years ago. Um, that's one of the lines is, help me to enter and live my story. And if when I'm finished, um, uh, success should come my way, remind me to be thankful. But if not, let the writing itself be sufficient. And so I, I think of this whole process as just, I've had the privilege for the last, you know, 30 years to be able to tell these stories, um, to, to encourage people. And in many ways, it's very much the healing process that I was involved with in mental health, that um, the word... The, the Greek word for um, comfort means to come along beside, and the Hebrew word for parable is to toss along beside, like a pebble. And so I think stories come along beside us, and they offer healing and 
and entryways, as, as Mary Oliver's poem says, it's a doorway mm -hmm. in which another, another voice may speak. And, and I think that's part of what counseling is about, too, is creating doorways so that people can find and step into a new direction. So I, I just think it's a privilege, and I, I just have to silence those little harpies because life is too short. I just don't have time for that. Yes, yeah, so. I love that. I will forever picture little harpies duct taped to the wall. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> I think that's terrific. Um, I mentioned at the beginning uh, your most recent book, One More River to Cross. That is based on a true story as well. And it, it was um, it was fraught with a lot of um, struggle, but also filled with just, I don't know, just that enduring strength of the human spirit that just made it yes. a delight to read. Um, I'm wondering if you could tell our listeners yes. a little bit about it. Yes, it, um, some people will be familiar with the Donner Party, which was mm -hmm. a story of a group of people who were stuck in the Sierra Nevada mountains and, and made kinds of decisions that resulted in um, many, many people died in that, and there was even some cannibalism that went on. So um, two years before that, in the exact same place, a group of Irish Catholic um, and others from Missouri, actually they'd originally been in Ireland, Canada, and Missouri, uh, wanted to come west um, and they wanted to bring wagons through the Sierra Nevada into what they called Alta California because California wasn't part of the United States at that point, it was part of Mexico. Um, and they wanted to be able to practice their religion but also build schools because education was really important to them. And they got stuck two years before this in the exact same place mm. with six to eight feet of snow um, in early October that never let up. They didn't have any game, but they made very different decisions. They listened to each other. Um, they kept an awareness of that commitment that what, what mattered was that they all survive. And it wasn't whether or not the wagons got there first or who got who who is the most successful or who had the best idea um and they split up in this party so in the book i track the different um, the different parties but there were uh, and the way i found out about this story was reading a footnote in another book um, okay. that a man said that he had come across a cabin where eight women, 17 children, and James Miller spent the winter of 1844-45 in the Sierra Nevadas. And I read that footnote and I thought, what were they doing there? I mean, who were they? And, yeah. you know, were they on vacation? <laughs> what was this, you know, so with because 17 the women kids, and I children were it was a vacation. Yes, I don't think so. Um, and where and where were the other men? You know, there are all these unanswered questions. Right. And since James Miller, James Miller was named, fortunately, I could then begin to find out who he was. Um, and the man who wrote the um, the man who wrote the footnote had been a part of that original party, so I could find out who he was because. He was attributed to that quote. And so the combination allowed me then to find out who these people were, who these women were, and to give them a voice 
um, to talk about what their hopes and dreams were and this Westering experience. My working title is called um, Wintering Women. And, uh, but I put that out on Facebook one time and said, what do you think a book about titled Wintering Women would be about? And someone said, well, the Donner Party. And I didn't want them to mm. think it was about the Donner Party. Um, and someone else said, well, maybe it's about women who climbed Mount Hood because they know I write stories about actual historical women. But someone else said, hmm, wintering women, could it be about menopause? <laughs> so I'll strike that title. So Yes, strike that title. Exactly, exactly. But I was able to use it, as you know, in the book to describe that group of women who had to stay in the cabin. Right. Um, and and to set up for um, trying to understand why they built that cabin for them in January and the men had gone to Sutter's Fort to try to send back a rescue party, but the rescue party didn't come until March. So yeah. that became another part of my research to find out what had gone on and what they must have told themselves and how did the women live with the uncertainty of what had happened to these men. Um, and and their own fragility about whether or not they would be able to survive um, mm -hmm. and how they took care of each other process. Yeah, well, you knit the story so, together so beautifully, and I, it was one of those things that yeah, I just you. couldn't, I had things to do, and I would have to put it down, but it was like, <laughs> nope, I'm not going to do it. So I would go to bed early, and I'd prop myself up, and I'd <laughs> so read till I could not stay awake and then pick it up again as soon as I could the next day. It really only took me, I think, three days to read through it, but um, thank you. Yeah, I'm, I'm now I'm putting you on the spot. I don't think I warned you. Would you be willing or open to read just a snippet? I always put my poets when I interview them on the spot, too, because there is something about <laughs> hearing the written word in the author's yes. voice that is I just I love it. And I think my listeners do as well. Well, I'll just read a little section. This is um, after they've, the, they've separated, um, and I've, I won't get all the background of the story, but um, Sarah is one of the women whose husband had decided to stay back and look after the two wagons that he had that were, um, he was a gunsmith. And so there were three men that stayed back with the heaviest six wagons. And, and they were newlyweds, and she was not all that excited about the fact that her husband had was sending her off to stay with somebody else. Um, well, he stayed with his, um, with his guns. So, um, so I'll just read this little section. Okay. The sun, was above the, uh, the sun was above the horizon the morning Sarah thought she saw things. That had happened lately, a fleeting image of movement across the room as she fell asleep. She wasn't frightened. In the morning, she'd ask if others had seen what she had and no one had. Must be hunger angels, Elbe told her, and Sarah had been grateful no one thought her daft, daft, around the bend, hysterical, devoid of mind. Sarah had gone out to the latrine using her new snowshoes. James had been gone two days, at the last minute leaving William behind. The boy was bereft, but his mother had prevailed. I can't lose both of you. Albe told her husband loud enough for the rest to hear. Well, you could hear everything in these close quarters. 
It was why sometimes Sarah sat in the torn apart wagons from time to time just to be alone, her sweater snugly around her, the cold drove her back to the others, or maybe it was the comfort of shared suffering. At night, her breath looked like clouds visible in the moonlight, and sometimes when the moon hid its face, the stars caused her to pause and wonder at the smallness of their little cabin, the people making do inside, watched over by the eyes of God. Mary said they were in a living purgatory, waiting, and perhaps they were. She finished her dailies, made water in the snow, rose and lowered her skirts, then used the shovel to cover her refuse. Finished, she looked up and saw movement. More angels? James must have turned back, but he would have come from the west in this activity. It was two men, came from the south. Indians. Indians, she screamed the warning, turned toward the cabin. What is it? Mary caught her as she threw herself to the door. It's Indians, men, they're coming. Are you sure? Mary grabbed a rifle that leaned next to the door. Gather the children up. Keep them quiet if you can, Mary said. May Alyssa was the first to respond, shushing children, clucking them into the far corner. Let's play a silent game, she said, and began making up rules, she whispered, while Sarah followed Mary back out and around the cabin's corner. Did they see you? Were they armed? I, I don't know. Do you think they did something to Alan? Are we next? I'll leave it at that. How's that? Oh, that's that? wonderful. Perfect. Thank you so much. And I know what my pleasure. Next, so. <laughs> what um are, now? Do you have another project in the works? Are you working on anything? I do. Um, oh, yes. yes, actually, I just I just turned in a book, and just we've agreed on the title, um, and it was the type my working title this time. Okay, and it's called Something Worth Doing. Okay. The story about one of the early suffragettes, um, but also she was a writer and she wrote 22 uh, novels in the 1860s and 70s, ran a newspaper and was the mother of six children and wow. had a disabled husband. So story of her overcoming um, is pretty remarkable. And then I was also asked to write a, a nonfiction chapter about her for a book called Eminent Oregonians, and they'll both be out next year. So that's been kind of an interesting process of writing nonfiction while I'm also writing fiction. So oh, that's it, exciting. It's that a challenging. Like a... Go ahead. I hope it will be. I, I hope it will be a um, another one of those inspirational stories of, um, and in in some ways, uh, what a career woman's life was like a hundred and some years ago so well I, I wonder if she had a little plaque too that said I don't have time for that <laughs> <laughs> that would be my guess is she did <laughs> oh I well, like the idea of that though I have to remember that yeah, thank you for that <laughs> yeah I would I would love my listeners to be able to follow up and find you on social media are you on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, any place like that that they could look you I'm up? I'm on all of those. Okay. And I have a, uh, I have a website, jkbooks.com. And um, the Twitter is, uh, you know, uh, pioneering women, uh, okay. hashtag pioneering women and hashtag for this book, as well as my own, you know, Jane Kirkpatrick. Um, 
and I, I also do a monthly story sparks. It's a, it's a monthly newsletter that comes by email. It's, a, it's kind of an inspirational piece. I review some books, uh, but I have a really wonderful following through that process. And if people are interested, they can just go to the website and sign up for it. It's called Story Sparks. Okay. Um, and it's in part because, yeah, I, I, my sort of motto is that stories are the sparks that light our ancestors' lives. And they're the embers we blow on to illuminate our own lives. That mm. that's how powerful stories are. Yeah, yeah. Very, very cool. Well, I'll probably head over there and sign up for that just for the fun of it. Well, that good. sounds that's great. So with that, I'm going to close. And thank you so much, Jane. It was such a delight to talk with you. And um, I appreciate your patience yeah. in, in us getting this set up. And there's a little background there right. I, I won't go into, but yeah. it meant a great deal for me to be able to sit down with you today. So I appreciate it. Yeah, me too. I really have enjoyed this. So thank you so much. And I love having, you know, being on anything that has the word poet in there, because I'm sure I'm just a frustrated poet in the, <laughs> in, in the end. So, so much. Yeah. Oh, well, thank you. One of the things I love about interviews is that after they're over, many times you find out some great tidbits that aren't included in the conversation. My favorite from talking to Jane today was learning that she begins each day with poetry. I think this is so cool. Poetry is the power to encourage, strengthen, and grow us. And from personal experience, I know that this is true. Now, please remember to find Jane online at jkbooks.com and on Facebook at the author Jane Kirkpatrick, on Twitter at Jane Kirkpatrick, and on Instagram at jane.kirkpatrick.3. That's it for today. Thank you for joining me here on Poet Kind Podcast. I know there are so many things out there that call for your time. And if you've spent a few moments here, I am so grateful. Poet Kind exists because of the support you listeners have shown through encouragement, reviews, and I can't stress enough how important those are, and the formation of relationships that has happened through this podcast. I'm grateful to be here and even more so for each of you. I firmly believe that we are stronger together, that it is okay to compare notes, but not to compare ourselves. Let's work together to create a space of welcome, of grace, and of support for the creative endeavors that have the capacity to make this world a better place. We say it in our name, but let's write kind, paint kind, create kind, live kind, poet kind, and above all, be kind. Until next time, thank you. Enjoy the rest of this day. <laughs>